Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are blasting past the first quest for the historical Jesus, and we are zooming on past the second quest for the historical Jesus and landing on the third quest for the historical Jesus, better known to the populace at large as the Jesus Seminar. Uh, And this is much more close to our time, much closer to our time than were the first two. Uh, Dad is going to give us a quick overview of the Jesus Seminar and what it's all about, its methodologies and orientations, and also why we are going to be focusing on Marcus Borg as a representative of the Jesus Seminar. Dad, take it away. Well, yeah, I think the methodology of the Jesus Seminar has been widely lampooned uh, because it was a collection of 30 or 40 um, biblical uh, scholars um, committed to the um, um, dismantling of Christian uh, doctrines about Jesus by uncovering the historical reality of Jesus. And uh, with this um, ideological commitment, they gathered together to cast votes on the authenticity of various uh, st- uh, sayings uh, attributed to Jesus in the New Testament. And um, they were color-coded with varying degrees of probability. And um, and then uh, the results were collated, and supposedly we got a profile of the um, the teachings of Jesus this way. I, I believe also that they um, uh, indicated uh, their thoughts about the historicity of various uh, narratives about Jesus in the Gospels as well. Now, th- this is just not serious scholarship, because the problems involved in the historical study of Jesus are so uh, complex um, and multifaceted that any interpretation is practically by necessity got to be the work of a single scholar uh, uh, working out a comprehensive theory uh, to interpret the evidence about Jesus. You just can't do it by committee. <laughs> Well, and also the kind of fake scientism of it, of assigning probabilities and and collating up statistical results. Uh, You know, Dad, when we were preparing for this, I was talking to Andrew about it, and he said that one of his college professors, I don't remember the name, actually was on the Jesus Seminar for a while, and he characterized why he finally had to leave as he started seeing red, which is a great pun, both uh, being frustrated at what was going on, but of course, red being the color in a red-letter Bible for Jesus' own words, he just saw way more Jesus in the gospel accounts than his uh, Jesus Seminar colleagues were willing to see, and he finally had to part company from them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, it it was a publicity-seeking event. And that's why I think we're going to focus today on the, the, you know, relatively coherent thinking of a particular scholar who also happens to be very influential in mainline Protestant and especially Lutheran circles, as he uh, emerge as he emerges from uh, conservative Lutheranism in the United States, namely Marcus Borg, um, and so we're going to kind of focus on his interpretation of the uh, historical Jesus and. Um, and his, uh, he's also willing, you know, to kind of theologize about uh, his approach and his results. Uh, and I think then halfway through the episode, uh, Sarah, what we'd like to do is switch back a century ago to the work of Johannes Weiss and see how Marcus Borg's interpretation, if not consciously or intentionally, is nevertheless an unwitting point-by-point attempt to refute uh, Johannes Weiss's um, interpretation of the kingdom of God and the preaching of Jesus. Hmm. Though uh, I think we're going to conclude that Weiss comes out looking much better than Borg. Well, if you got a quest for the historical Jesus, yes. 
you know. <laughs> right, yeah. right. All right, so I should just, uh, again, uh, full disclosure, especially after the last episode where I was reduced to a uh, Waldorf and Statler of the Muppet Show um, persona, and, and this time I'm going to try to be less like a shock jock on talk radio in my scoffing. But I should just say <laughs> that Dad will once again be leading the way with, with the review of Borg. Um, my one and only exposure to Borg was years and years ago, maybe when I was still in seminary even, I read a book that was co-authored by Borg and N.T. Wright called The Meaning of Jesus, Two Visions. And um, I, I think I approached it with some trepidation because, I, like I, I've mentioned, my uh, New Testament training was much more literarily oriented than historically oriented. So I was like, well, OK, so so maybe this famous Borg guy is going to knock down all of my uh, pre-critical uh, naive faith, but I honestly found Borg's argument so laughably unconvincing and poorly reasoned um, on just so many levels. And I, I thought Wright's case was overall much more plausible that um, at that point, I, I think that finally uh, is what completely uh, confirmed my total lack of interest in pursuing historical Jesus questions. I just thought the, like the the bedrock presuppositions were were so transparently ideological and not and not responsible history or responsible science. So anyway, so I've just, uh, as I said, been uh, a scoffer ever since. But um, rather than sitting in the seat of scoffers, I'm going to sit at the feet of my um, <laughs> responsible scholar father, who will demonstrate with a dispassionate reason why Borg should not be taken as a... Um, the best interpreter of Jesus available for uh, believers and clergy of this time. Yeah. Uh, and of course that also means though, uh, t- just uh, two, um, two provisos on what you've said. First of all, that a post critical view um, of new test of, of the, the scriptures as the source of Christian theology is not and cannot ever be the literary method that you mentioned cannot ever be a, um, a naive return to the pre-critical approach to the Bible, um, and the reasons for that will uh, will become evident as we've talked about the quests for the historical Jesus. It's like once you've lost your innocence, you cannot go back and read uh, with a kind of forced second naivete you know that all the New Testament gospel stories of Jesus are written from the post-Easter perspective of resurrection faith in him. And that, of course, uh, constructs the very telling of the story of Jesus. It doesn't create it out of, out of thin air. It's, it's not creatio ex nihilo, but it is an interpretation uh, of the Jesus of Nazareth who lived on this earth, born of a Jewish mother under the law, and finally crucified under Pontius Pilate. So you can't go back in the name of a literary reading of the New Testament to some pre-critical approach. You have to uh, be cognizant of the fact that Easter faith is the uh, axiomatic point of departure for uh, looking at the Jesus of history. Yeah, I'm perfectly well aware of that, of course. And when we've talked about our our various Bible episodes on here, like I, I'm not at all afraid of asking, like, do you think that really happened, like the raising of Lazarus or something like that, or what's really going on here? I think for me, it was that the historical quest is what seems so ridiculously naive to me, as if they could get at Jesus apart from post Easter faith. That that was what I found um, unconvincing. Not not the fact of pursuing these questions critically at all. Good. And we'll see that Borg is a little more sophisticated on just this very issue. So that makes him a more interesting person uh, to, um, to um, uh, interrogate on this third quest for the historical Jesus. And I hope uh, by the end of the episode, like I said, that we can show that if you are insisting on with the methods of modern historical inquiry, Uh, to discover a Jesus of history, what you will discover is exactly the apocalyptic figure that Schweitzer feared and that Johannes Weiss exegetically documented. That's anyway the hypothesis that we're working with today. So let's go on to Borg. 
For Borg, Jesus of Nazareth was a Galilean Jewish peasant of the first century, a flesh-and-blood figure of the past. And then he pronounces, This Jesus is dead and gone. He isn't around anymore. By distinction, the post-Easter Jesus is what Jesus became after his death. More fully, I mean, he says, the Jesus of Christian tradition and experience. Um, so what so, we often hear called the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. Right. So that that dualism is the, they're, you know, being established axiomatically for Bork. Uh, it's the vicious revenge of the criterion of dissimilarity, which, remember from several episodes prior, stipulates that anything resembling post-Easter Christian faith or contemporary Judaism must be stricken uh, uh, from the, the account of the real historical Jesus in order to get at bedrock historical reality. Um, so that's uh, what uh, Borg is operating with, this criterion of dissimilarity, which in principle requires this dualism between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. So that's for him. Jesus was a Jewish mystic. Uh, the earthly Jesus was a Jewish mystic on the one hand, and he became in Christianity the Messiah um, after Easter. And so the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus are two separate realities. And he says then quite bluntly that he's not persuaded that the pre-Easter Jesus thought of himself as the Messiah. And so he has to be described in non-Messianic categories. Right. So then that's where it gets kind of weird for me, because at this point, you'd think there'd be some kind of break <laughs> between Borg and Jesus. But it seems to be what happens is he gets more committed than ever to Jesus and then has to construct another set of like abstract concepts or commitments in order to defend his ongoing interest in Jesus. So he talks about finally calling into question his modern worldview about what is possible and how reductionistic it is, and that we have to adopt a different worldview to see how seriously Jesus took God. He even says here, I became aware that the modern worldview is itself a relative cultural construction, the product of a particular era in human intellectual history. And as a result of questioning that, he now says, that he takes God more seriously, even though the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith are absolutely divorced from one another. What do you make of that? Well, I wouldn't say absolutely divorced of one another, but they are. I mean, obviously, there is some kind of connection for Borg, but it's not right. an identity. You can't say Jesus Christ. You cannot say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as a flat-footed identification. You vote, you, he, he, that's why he says, Jesus, uh, um, my understanding of Jesus before Easter is that Jesus was not interested in leading people to believe in him. He was doing something else. And then he has a kind of a full-blown account of what that something else was. And then in turn, he says, the apocalyptic eschatology of early Christianity uh, in the expectation of the second coming of Jesus, emerged, he says, within the early Christian community after Easter. So this is very different from from Schweitzer then, right? Because Schweitzer would say that the, and vice too, as we'll see, would say that the apocalyptic vision is Jesus' own. And now Borg is saying it's not at all Jesus' own, it's the early churches. That's right. Uh, even though we'll see with uh, uh, Johannes Weiss, who's got a more exegetically detailed case for Schweitzer's position, um, uh, there are some distinctions to be made here. Uh, uh, it's true that for Borg, the whole messianic um, and um, uh, suffering servant motifs were products of early Christianity. Uh, and that if we're going to look at the G the pre-Easter Jesus, we have to see him as a mystic. Jesus was one for whom God was an experienced reality. 
He even uses William James' term uh, of a first-hand religious experience rather than a second-hand belief. Uh, people who typically and frequently had first-hand experiences of the sacred. So instead of being um, one seized with expectation of the nearness of God's kingdom and commissioned to battle against the satanic powers um, as a result, uh, and in that sense being one who saw his life in messianic terms and saw his death in terms of uh, atonement theology from Isaiah 53, uh, Borg argues that uh, Jesus had a relationship with the divine, and I would use that rather than with God, uh, since he's relying so heavily on religious studies categories and William James, James's psychology of religion. Okay, so this is one of the first places where it's <laughs> one of many places, I should say, where it seems like the historical method is betraying itself. Because if I think over all of the gospel stories, I find so little evidence for Jesus' relationship with God or how he felt about God or thought about God or was transparent and imminent to God. What I see is an overwhelming set of accounts of Jesus engaging with other people. So I don't actually know where this comes from or how this is defended as a historical datum. Can you give an account of that? Yeah, you have, you know, the occasional references to Jesus uh, going off on his own for prayer. Uh, you have the uh, okay. baptism experience. You have the wilderness experience. You have the Gethsemane experience. Uh, but how little of those Borg actually accounts as as um, historically true. Uh, and, right. And what you do see in the Gospels is, as I've said before on these private previous podcasts, a man on a mission, a man on a mission. And we'll flush that out when we turn to Johannes Weiss later on. Um, but here, I think, is where Borg does get at least intellectually interesting because he connects his postmodern rediscovery of the sacred with his interpretation of Jesus as a mystic rather than as an apocalyptic, um, with a critique of what he calls supernatural theism. And he writes, for many people, supernatural theism makes the notion of God incredible. Indeed, most modern atheism is a rejection of the God of supernatural theism. It is also theologically deficient. It affirms only the transcendence of God and neglects the imminence of God. Affirming only God's transcendence makes God absent. Well, I mean, I don't know any contemporary Trinitarian theologians who would be guilty of supernatural theism as charged. <laughs> I mean, I can see that that in a kind of degraded form is what many people popularly understand Christianity to be, you know, some sort of set of abstract concepts, you know, probably inherited from the Greek past. You know, even using words like transcendence, imminence, theism, like those are, are so far removed from the immediacy of what presumably ought to be preached in churches based on actual scripture. Yeah, and um, it's more like therapeutic uh, deism. <laughs> is what oh, yeah, therapeutic talking. moralistic deism. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, here, here, here's the, the subtle point that I don't want to overlook. If we, we follow the Johannes Weiss interpretation, for Jesus, God is neither transcendent nor imminent as basic categories. Rather, God is imminent. Notice the subtle difference in spelling. God is near at hand. God is approaching. God is on the march. God is coming, right? And, and with that notion, you have both the traditional concerns for the transcendence. God is not in our pockets, not in our control, manipulation, or prediction. God comes from God to us at God's own sovereign initiative. That's the transcendent pull. 
But God is close at hand. God is approaching. God is near, uh, and so forth. Um, so um, um, that that's just, it's just a different conceptuality that's involved in a apocalyptic eschatology than in a, a mystical worldview. But let's move on. We'll come back to this uh, Borg's theological uh, beliefs as we, we, we continue. Interestingly enough, Borg thinks that the healing ministry of Jesus uh, and the traditions of a shared meal, like the feedings of the multitudes and so forth, were central features of Jesus's public ministry. Now, why does he want to affirm those as historically reliable data? Well, according to Borg, these activities point to an unbrokered relationship to God, apart from institutional mediation. It affirmed the immediacy of access to God. Well, Sarah, is... Can you is hear this, my eyes rolling? <laughs> yes. Is, is this not the debased uh, interpretation of the priesthood of all believers, that everyone gets to be their own priest, which is exactly not what the Reformation meant by the <laughs> priesthood of all believers, but rather that in Christ, Christians get to be little Christ mediators of uh, peace, love, and justice to the neighbor in need. Yeah, it just sounds like the most typical, you know, cheap shot Christianity versus Judaism and Protestantism versus Roman Catholicism. And I just have a hard time believing that the real problem on the mind of your average Galilean peasant was, gosh, I wish I could pray to God directly and didn't have to go to synagogue or temple. Like, <laughs> I just don't think that was their issue. Yeah, in fact, most people go to synagogue or church because they need help in praying to God. Yeah, right. <laughs> they right. can't do it on their own without help, without mediation. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, and yeah. That, along the same lines, then he lifts up Jesus as teaching an alternative wisdom, um, and he says he's more like Lao Tzu or the Buddha than a teacher of conventional wisdom. Though I have no idea what he means by that. Does he mean the Book of Proverbs in the Old Testament or something like that? Does he mean? the sophists uh, of the Greek tradition or the Platonist Socratic philosophers? I, I just don't know. Uh, he, he, in fact, bases this claim in part uh, on the authenticity of traditions in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which for me is just an enormous leap. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. I mean, historically speaking, it's an enormous leap. leap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps the biggest thing he says about the Jesus of history building on Walter Brueggemann's interpretation of Israel's social prophets um, was that Jesus um, indicted the um, temple in Jerusalem and its uh, traditions. And here he tries to make a disclaimer. The point is not that Jerusalem and the temple were the center of Judaism. The point is not that there was something wrong with Judaism, which is an entirely ambiguous, I'm just interjecting here, uh, an entirely ambiguous claim because Second Temple Judaism was a cauldron of conflicting Judaisms, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, followers of John the Baptist, uh, scribes, Pharisees, Hellenists, and so forth, zealots, right? Uh, so... Judaism at that time was not yet normative Judaism, and the historical Jesus was in the thick of Judaism contending about its own identity. But for Borg, the point is that the Jerusalem and the temple were the center of the ruling elites and thus the center of a domination system. Um, and so the, the conflict with the temple in Jerusalem was as a result of his activity of a social prophet. Um, 
So, okay. So again, like I, I see the point, like we've, when we, in our gospel episodes, we've talked about Jesus conflict with the ruling elites in Jerusalem. That is clearly one part of the story. But again, I can't help but see here a total retrojection of the modern idealization of the revolutionary, you know, the one who speaks truth to power and, you know, the sole hero who goes up against the man and the domination system. And, you know, here he talks more about the Jerusalem temple, but you could also say the same about the Roman and we're against the Roman Empire. And, you know, like, clearly there those are elements of what is happening. But it just seems to me, oddly enough, making the whole story of Jesus so imminent. And so just another episode in the ongoing struggle between oppressor and oppressed, it doesn't sound to me like reading the history in its own right. It sounds very much to me like projecting our own modern values, just like Schweitzer said we always do in this quest. Yeah, I, I think that's I, I think that's largely right. Um, uh, he'll acknowledge that um, he doesn't like the idea uh, that Jesus viewed his own death as salvific. Um, he says, "I find this not only a strange notion, but an unattractive notion to attribute to Jesus. I don't want Jesus to have seen his own death." in Jerusalem as a result of his critique of the temple, as having redemptive significance. As a Christian, I want Jesus to be an attractive figure. Now, he acknowledges that that's, that, that bias, that subjective bias, uh, cannot be a criterion for making historical judgments. But he nevertheless goes right on to make this historical judgment. <laughs> yeah, it's like I've said before, is if 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 you don't have a Nicene Jesus Christ, then your attachment to Jesus as your preferred great teacher of unconventional wisdom ends up being purely parochial and a personal preference. It doesn't have any any more claim or texture to it than that. And I, I feel like he just admitted to that right here. Yeah, he says um, that... Um, um, uh, all the evidence of Jesus's historical conflict with the temple institution in Jerusalem is difficult to reconcile with the claim, I'm quoting here, that his atoning death was the most central to his messianic vocation, end quote. Now, do you notice the contradiction? <laughs> yeah, he's just said earlier, Jesus had no sense of a messianic vocation or consciousness whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's just a arguing in a circle. Um, and he, he ties down this point here. If Jesus had only been a mystic, a healer, and a wisdom teacher, I doubt that he would have been executed. But he was also a God-intoxicated voice of religious social uh, protest who had attracted a following. He died as a martyr, not as a victim. A martyr was killed because he or she stands for something. Jesus was killed because he stood against the kingdoms of this world and for an alternative social vision grounded in the kingdom of God. The domination system killed Jesus as the prophet of the kingdom of God. This is the political meaning of Good Friday, end quote. I mean, it's just so interesting to me how badly you need a really good villain for this story to work. Like, you really need both Rome and the Jerusalem elites to get what Jesus was about, to see, oh no, we are threatened, we have to take him out before he upends the world, when in fact, it seems to me, at least where the Romans were concerned, was like, ugh, what an annoying gadfly. Yeah, let's just get rid of him. Okay, whatever. I wash my hands of this. Like, the, the kind of, I mean, I think... And my reading, if for what it's worth, <laughs> the historical record of the Gospels is a kind of, all right, whatever indifferentism on the part of Pilate, not some like, oh my gosh, the Roman Empire is threatened. Don't let this prophet critique what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, what is quite interesting here from the standpoint of um, the tradition of Christian theology is that this interpretation utterly guts, guts, removes the vitality, the life, from the passion predictions of Jesus with their Greek word day, this divine passive, it must be that the Son of Man be handed over. It guts the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane surrendering to his father's uncanny will. 
it guts the cry of dereliction from the cross, his experience um, that he was dying uh, under the uh, hiddenness of God, the absence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the villain that is actually there, if you want to have to use these categories in the New Testament as we have it, is his God and Father who wills his way to the cross and the dereliction um, and uses the wickedness of the temple elite and the Roman Empire uh, to, to affect that, judge, that judgment. That doesn't make Ju Judas or the Sadducees or Pontius Pilate innocent, uh, but it, it does mean that God is the one who's responsible for the death of his son. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, to your point about gutting, it reminds me when we did our episode on the resurrection a couple years ago, uh, one of the scholars I read said, here's the problem with talking about the resurrection or anything that might be qualified as a miracle, which is that it all starts from first principles. Either you think such a thing as resurrection can happen or you think it can't. And that's what makes any further discussion very difficult. <laughs> and I feel like it's the same thing with these passion predictions too, a historical method that says somebody in within the realm of uh, you know human history can know that he is going to die or can know that the temple is going to fall in 40 years or whatever either that that is a possibility in the world or it's not a possibility in the world and already from there all of the possible consequences of your thought are spelled out so it just this it seems to me another case of just saying well no he could not have known that he was going to die the way he would or or that the temple would fall or any of the other predictions therefore you know, then you have to, then all the consequences you draw are just self-evident, but it's, it's an axiom. It's not actually an argument. Right. And just purely on the grounds of historical method, why shouldn't it be plausible that a pious Jew like Jesus would anticipate his coming to Jerusalem would end in a cataclysmic clash? Why shouldn't he anticipate that? And why shouldn't he nevertheless conclude that this clash was the will of God. Um, uh, I, it seems to me that that would be entirely plausible. Peter Stuhlmacher, who took Kazeman's chair at Tübingen, um, um, a New Testament scholar, uh, uh, argued along these lines that the institution uh, narrative of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, uh, indicates how Jesus took up the text in Isaiah 53 to interpret his own death uh, as the work of the suffering servant of the Lord. Um, and of course, Borg entirely dismisses all of this. He, he says, of course, the post-Easter church used um, me metaphorical interpretation of his death along the lines of the sacrificial imagery um, of the temple tradition. Sacrifice was a way of dealing with sin, and that was central to the world of Jesus. He acknowledges that. But for Borg, the point is to disestablish the temple's claim to have an institutional monopoly on forgiveness and access to God. God is accessible apart from institutional mediation. So that's, again, the punchline. Why do you want to discredit this unattractive view of Jesus who sees himself uh, as the suffering servant of the Lord in his passion and death in Jerusalem? Because you don't want the temple to have a monopoly on access to God. If that was anyone's problem. Okay. Well, you know, I'll say that Marcus Borg is, remains enough of a Lutheran to be dangerous. <laughs> uh, because he denies that we are made right by believing that Jesus is the sacrifice. Why is that wrong? The system of requirement remains, and believing in Jesus is the new requirement. But in fact, the meaning is the abolition of the system of requirements, not the establishment of a new system of requirements. He is the end of the law, including the law of belief in Jesus as the sacrifice provided by God. 
Again, well, I mean, I can totally see there is, a, let's fully acknowledge, we've critiqued many times a degraded form of Lutheranism that makes believing the right doctrinal loci in just precisely the right way is the source of your salvation and the ultimate good work. Yes, that exists as a possibility. And if that was what Borg heard proclaimed as the gospel, then shame on the church that catechized him that way. And I don't blame him for not wanting to do anything more with it. However, he still wants the goods without the Christ who could deliver them. Well, yes, but that's an interesting twist twist here because now when it comes actually to what Easter is about, he does want to maintain some kind of strong reference to the Jesus of history. Um, He says that the ground of historical ground of Easter is very simple. The followers of Jesus, both then and now, continue to experience Jesus as a living reality after his death. I think these were experiences of the same presence they had known in Jesus during his historical lifetime. Indeed, I think such experiences were the reason they said, Jesus is still here, but in a radically new way, namely without a physical body. So, continuity um, um, is affirmed, and I, he sees the post-Easter Jesus as an experiential reality. Um, so, that means that really what Easter is, is the conviction of the disciples that he cannot have utterly perished. He must continue. He must still be here with us, something along those lines. I don't have any idea why they would think that. And I, I think uh, we're not talking about N.T. right here, but I think his argument against that kind of, uh, of of saying that that could have even been a plausible reconstruction of what the early apostles were thinking right after Jesus' death, um, it, it's it's preposterous. I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't find it. I don't understand how anyone thinks that that makes any sense of any of the evidence, either of Jesus or of why he's remembered or the apostles or the sheer strength of Christianity ever since. Just none of it adds up for me with it. This just seems so preposterously weak. I think the part of the reason again is the polemic that is punctuates Borg's entire account against so-called supernatural theism. Uh, and he, he, he provides us this caricature. God intervened by sending Jesus as the only Son of God into the world to live and die for us. For 30 years or so, more or less, God was here, incarnate in Jesus. But normally God isn't here. This view sees Jesus as the unique incarnation of an absent interventionist God and unparalleled divine insertion into the natural order. Well, for heaven's sakes, if that's what you've believed, then, uh, okay, let the historical quest for Jesus disestablish your bad theology. I'm all for (laughs) the critical disestablishment of such silliness. Um, But then what happens when you have nothing but a kind of knee-jerk reaction against this fundamentalism and supernatural theism that he I've just described, is a kind of panentheism, which insists that God is both transcendent and imminent. And here again, he picks up this idea of mysticism, which says that you empty yourself to be filled with God. And this then becomes the uh, model for interpreting Jesus as the very best incarnation of God among many incarnations of God. I see Jesus as the embodiment and incarnation of God who is everywhere present in the fully human life of this utterly remarkable spirit person. We see the incarnation of God, right? I don't know. It sounds suspicious to to me, like he is slipping in through the back door some new religious requirements of us being mystical self-emptiers so we also can be filled with the Spirit of God. Maybe never quite as good as Jesus, because that would be a bit much, but he is the great exemplar of what we too could become. <laughs> well, that's exactly how he interprets the Incarnation following Meister Eckhart, the German uh, mystic. Uh, especially the Christmas story. The story of the virgin birth is the story of Christ being born within us through the union of the Spirit of God with our flesh. 
Ultimately, the story of Jesus' birth is not just about the past, but about the internal birth in us in the present. Oh my gosh! I mean, talk about laying heavy religious burdens on people. You too can manifest the life of God. Why aren't you manifesting the life of God? What's wrong with you? Get to work. I mean, that's where this ends. This is, this is where Christ primarily or only as exemplum always ends. Of course, there is a superficial resemblance to the statement of Luther. It does no good that Christ was born in Bethlehem if he is not born in you. But for Luther, the possibility of the new birth in us is just because Christ was born in Bethlehem, born of a woman born under the law. Right, and it's God's ongoing doing in the person of the Holy Spirit, who has not remotely been mentioned in this whole account here, as an active, living, present God on this earth. And it is the Holy Spirit who does it, rather than than us having to work at, you know, self-emptying in order to, you know, fill ourselves up with something more godlike. Yeah, I think when you try to get at how Borg is pulling off this argument, it really comes down to two things. He has a mistaken understanding of what metaphor is and how it works, and that uh, 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 in tandem with that, um, he um, employs the cross-cultural approach with its emphasis on religious experience um, that is popular in contemporary religious studies. Um, the second approach imposes a foreign uh, paradigm or framework on the interpretation of the New Testament. That, by the way, is N.T. Wright's basic methodological objection to Borg's entire program. Uh, Wright argues that we have to understand Jesus on his own terms, in the terms of Second Temple Judaism in which he lived and thought and had his life and mission and death and so forth. Uh, and the second problem that I would point out as a systematic theologian uh, is his gross misunderstanding of metaphor. Quote, metaphors can be true, but their truth is not literal. The essential meaning of metaphor is, quote, to see as, to see X as something else, as Y. Now, friends, I, I hate to be so pedantic. That's a simile. That's not a metaphor. That's a simile, to see something to be like or to be something as. A metaphor is rather a transference of meaning, which tells us uh, what um, some, um, uh, something unfamiliar is by um, the use of something that is familiar. So we can say something like, Christ crucified. Now, what's familiar in Second Temple Judaism is the notion of a triumphant, victorious Messiah. That's familiar. But Paul says the scandal of Christian proclamation is to use this familiar term, Christ, the triumphant, victorious Messiah, and to predicate of him crucifixion. That appears to be a jarring contradiction of sense. It upsets our thinking and forces us uh, to perceive a new reality in the world, the Christ who reigns from the cross, like, for example, in the Gospel of Luke or something like that. A metaphor, therefore, has reference. The meaning of a metaphor is to something literally in the world. And if it doesn't have this reference, it has no sense at all. It's just uh, verbiage. It's just empty rhetoric. Uh, uh, and a simile uh, is what Borg's theology kind of boils down to. Uh, he says, uh, what I want and what I'm confident about is that we know enough about the historical Jesus to give substantial content to the claim that in Jesus, I'm quoting literally, we see what God is like and give substantial content to the claim that in Jesus we see what God is like and what a, full, a life full of God is like. These are similes, not metaphors. Similes providing an idealistic worldview, not metaphors enacting a new redemptive reality 
of God and sinner reconciled. And that's why it finally has to be moralistic and requirement-oriented rather than salvific and liberative. You know, it really came through to me by the time I got to the end here that what Borg basically sees is a knowledge problem, that the problem with humans is that they don't know enough about what God is like or what the good life is like. And if they knew it, then there would be a solution. And we can surely say that, yes, uh, because of the nature of the human animal, uh, most of what we need is transferred culturally rather than instinctually or naturally. That's really an, an, a simple way of saying what separates us from all other animals. So humans definitely have a lot of knowledge problems, and there is a lot that knowledge can do, but it can't do everything. And most crucially, what it cannot do is heal the rift in the cosmos and the broken relationship between creator and creatures. And the strong Christian claim is that not just that uh, Jesus reveals facts or information or unknown but necessary knowledge about God, but that Jesus actually does the thing. He does God. He is God and thereby heals and makes right things that are actually broken. And that, that therefore it's really the external action of God, not the internal improvement of our state of knowledge about something that it makes it good news. Right. And no theologian would ever want to minimize the importance of knowledge in Christian education. We do these odd podcasts for the sake of lifelong Christian learning. So that's not what's at issue at all here. What's at issue is, the, as you were saying, uh, and I would put it this way, is for Borg, the Gospels that we have are similes, similes, metaphor, in his mistaken understanding of metaphor, uh, truths, wisdom truths about what God is like, historicized, turned into narratives that purport to be actual historical facts. So they are um, similes historicized. They are not deeds which reveal and enact the salvation of God. Hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, so precisely. So like to use your example, we, we do these podcasts in order to educate because we value knowledge, but neither of us is even close to thinking that this is actually the salvific act. Or even if people <laughs> get God and the gospel in a new way from listening to us, that there, thereby the deed has been done. The deed has already been done in Christ and continues to be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I really was struck also by what you said about the kind of implicit utopianism, because I've become convinced the most dangerous words in the English language are if only and all that follows after them because if only we knew better if only we believed better if only we did better then everything would be okay and actually no the human plate the uh, apocalyptic situation we find ourselves in is that all the stuff we do however good always fails <laughs> and if only uh, if only god would intervene is the, is the only proper way to com- conclude that sentence not if only we would and so many um, I realize now, Dad, a lot of the things you've been, critiques you've offered in um, in our, our podcast of of approaches to theology that think if only we thought right or more biblically or more correctly, then we would solve X, Y, or Z problems. And again, within the, the horizontal plane, there is certainly better or worse. I don't want to deny that. But as the ultimate solution that leads towards a utopianism, it's so dangerous and has done so much damage, um, and especially the if-onlys of uh, secular aspirations in the past 150 years have been so... The carnage is astonishing. So... Uh, not not that Borg would endorse any of that, but I'm just saying there there is a this trend of this if only utopian correct knowledge thinking that is uh, metastasized and uh, incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and for me that insight goes back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, uh, critique of cheap grace. Uh, and if you read that passage in the Cost of Discipleship carefully you see that what Bonhoeffer is critiquing as cheap grace is ideas about God as loving and forgiving and so forth and so on, rather than the reality of God's forgiveness, which is always at the same time God's judgment upon the sin, which is being forgiven, judgment in the very act of the forgiving. Uh, And that's the kind of 
um, justification of the sinner that entails its conformity to Christ's death and resurrection. That's not cheap grace. That's costly grace. So let's move on to Johannes Weiss, because I think we can conclude this podcast very briefly by pointing out step by step how Weiss's interpretation of the Jesus of history um, um, provides the real alternative to Borg's. Yeah, well, I think it's good to say that right at the outset of the book, Vice, in his introduction, offers what he's doing also as a corrective to what he sees as degraded Lutheran preaching that is purely and only about the forensic declaration of the forgiveness of your personal sins. And that is the sum total of the gospel. And so he's trying to um, expand (laughs) the range to include Jesus' own teaching and embodiment of the kingdom of God. And the first thing um, he, he, at the end, of the book, he kind of gives a a summary of his findings. And um, I think these first two are are really um, greatly put against this um, utopian and post-millennialist approach that we've seen in Borg. So uh, Weiss writes, Jesus' activity is governed by the strong and unwavering feeling that the messianic time is imminent with an eye. Indeed, he even had moments of prophetic vision when he perceived the opposing kingdom of Satan as already overcome and broken. At such moments as these, he declared with daring faith that the kingdom of God had actually already dawned. In general, however, the actualization of the kingdom of God has yet to take place. In particular, this is, I think, really important. Jesus recognized no preliminary actualization of the rule of God in the form of the new piety of his circle of disciples, as if there were somehow two stages, a preliminary one and the kingdom of completion. In fact, Jesus made no such distinction. The disciples were to pray for the coming of the kingdom, but men, people, could do nothing to establish it. And then finally, uh, the third point here, not even Jesus can bring, establish, or found the kingdom of God. Only God can do so. God himself must take control. In the meantime, Jesus can only battle against the devil with the power imparted to him by the divine spirit and gather a band of followers who, with a new righteousness, with repentance, humility, and renunciation, await the kingdom of God. So this is built on Weiss's whole uh, excavation, uh, his own historical excavation of of uh, the, the gospel stories. And what is so striking to me is, first of all, God entirely remains the subject, which I think is a, is a simple way as any of saying that this is an apocalyptic intervention. And secondly, the main thing that Jesus' followers do is wait. They can certainly pray. They can repent. They can rena- renounce those things that are evil. And uh, Jesus himself can go to battle with the devil. But even uh, even a uh, I think Vice has a fairly high doctrine of Jesus, maybe not a, a perfectly, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, old school Christological one. But even for him, it is really entirely God's action that makes the thing, the kingdom of God, come about. You know, that's really important, I think, because um, it makes me think here of the Christology of Wolfhard Pannenberg, who really built upon this. Um, kind of paradoxical insight that Jesus demonstrates his true divine sonship precisely by his profound and consistent, even to death on a cross, self-distinction from God his Father. Let me say that again. Jesus demonstrates his true divine sonship precisely by his profound, consistent, even to death on the cross, self-distinction from his God and Father. Um, And I think uh, building on this then, the the idea of Jesus' divine sonship is not alien from the actual humanity of the Jesus of history. In fact, the divine sonship of Jesus is to our minds, paradoxically, against our intuitions, against our common sense way of thinking, but nevertheless truly expressed in the humility and obedience of Jesus, who utterly staked his all upon the uh, royal actions of his God and Father, the God of Israel. 
Yeah. So in fact, that's how um, Vice talks about Jesus as Messiah. He says the messianic consciousness of Jesus consists of the certainty that when God has established the kingdom, judgment and rule will be transferred to him. God will raise him to the office of son of man to which he is entitled and will make him Lord and Messiah. And then this is how Vice makes the bridge from Jesus' life of ministry to the ministry of his death. He says, although Jesus initially hoped to live to see the establishment of the kingdom, he gradually became certain that before this could happen, he must cross death's threshold and make his contribution to the establishment of the kingdom of Israel by his death. Uh, and I just, uh, I'll insert parenthetically here. So Vice does not find Jesus' predictions of his own death to be implausible historically. After that, uh, Vice continues, Jesus will return upon the clouds of heaven at the establishment of the kingdom and do so within the lifetime of the generation which had rejected him. Jesus, however, does not fix the time when this will take place more exactly, since the coming of the kingdom cannot be determined in advance by observation of signs or calculation. But when it comes, God will destroy this old world, which is ruled and spoiled by the devil and create a new world, etc. And then uh, from there, Vice kind of spells out the the um, post crisis, post judgment, and return of Christ and glory aspects of of how the kingdom will be made complete. Yeah, and what I would like to lift up at this point is what I've been calling the fabulous nature of Christian hope. God will destroy this old world and create a new world. I mean, I'm I'm looking with this terminology of the fabulous for an alternative to the worn-out phraseology of mythology or something like that, or magic. Um, It is simply a way of expressing the conviction deeply embedded in the Gospels that with God all things are possible. And that, of course, those possibilities for cosmic transformation are expressed in the rather fantastic pictures we get Uh, in the little apocalypses of the synoptic gospels and in the great apocalypse of the final book of the Bible. Uh, But what really, I think, matters is that these fabulous depictions of cosmic transformation include judgment, right? And they include the vindication of the righteous of Israel, um, both of which can be... uh, badly misunderstood, as though judgment were pure uh, divine vengeance on the earth, rather than the vindication of God's own righteous cause for the world, and as if it were like we've talked about the naive chiliasm of the New Testament, uh, uh, in which uh, Zion will be literally uh, um, lifted up as the capital of the of a renewed earth or something like that. Right. So I, I think then uh, just the way to wrap this up is to say that um, the, the, the pushback is going to be, well, at least utopians give us some operating plan, whereas this kind of just wait for the kingdom sounds like, you know, old school Lutheran quietism. And, you know, I would just like to say, considering how many interventions in recent history have caused the death of millions and millions of people, maybe just sitting back and doing nothing would be a radical improvement for the human race right now. <laughs> well, However, yeah, that's not actually where vice ends up. And I think that actually, he does extract from Jesus something like an operational program for as long as you live on the earth. And it's this. Vice writes, for Jesus, the highest present personal good is instead the consciousness of the love and care of the heavenly father of being a child of God. Jesus himself lived in the enjoyment of this love with a certainty and freshness, which we cannot imitate, and also invited and instructed his disciples to lay hold of this highest good and thankfulness and joy. Now, the supreme ethical ideal is to serve God the Father with surrender of the whole heart and to become free from the world. The highest proofs of this freedom from the world are the love of one's enemy and the sacrifice of one's life for the sake of God. Now, that actually is a meaningful program that does not require you to go messing around with millions of people and removing them or altering them. It actually calls upon you right now to do this thing, very difficult thing of loving your enemy, becoming free from the world and sacrificing yourself for the sake of God. And I think this points out very well, Dad, your arguments that Martin Luther King was an apocalyptic intervention of God on the earth because that exactly describes what he did. 
Right. Be the change that you want the world to become. Right. Yeah. Um, Rather uh, than impose it, the change on the world that you think will make it a better place. Exactly. Uh, I do think, though, that we could say um, uh, we could add to Johannes Weiss, uh, uh, who's, of course, treating the Jesus of history in this little book. Um, we could add the full implications of Jesus's resurrection as his divine vindication and appointment to the office of Son of Man, Messiah, and so forth. This Jesus whom you crucified, Peter preaches in the book of Acts, uh, God has made both Lord and Christ, right? Mm, um, right, right. And as, a, as such, there is, um, in a carefully to be described way, an inaugurated eschatology. Um, and which is the conferral of the same spirit that led Jesus uh, from his birth and baptism to his death and resurrection, um, the same Jesus who anointed Jesus, the same spirit who anointed Jesus and led him on his life way, this very same spirit is also bequeathed uh, to his people uh, so that they may participate in uh, the ongoing work of our prophet, priest, and king, and something like that. So there is a kind of inaugurated eschatology, and it takes its place in the renewal of uh, people's lives in the community of the church as itself, as, as we've said uh, in many episodes, um, as a paradoxically political form of theology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad we've uh, wrapped that up with a bow and solved all problems related to the historical Jesus and hope it is helpful, uh, especially to uh, preachers out there. So next time on the show, a super special top secret episode, which I'm not going to tell you anything more about. You're just going to have to wait with bated breath until it comes out. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.